just prior to the sermon, in which Nate will be here in just a moment for that, I want to read the, the scripture reading for our text today, the, the sermon. This is from Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 1 through verse 11. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zelpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you open our eyes to see what we will not unless you do? Or would you lead us and by your truth show us the way that is true? Would you grant us this day a willing heart to listen and to heed and to, and to learn from the one who made us and the one who comes to us through this word, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tony. Now, before we turn our attention to Genesis 37, I want you to turn in your bulletins to page 8. To page 8. It should be just a page or two over from where we are currently. And I want to just note that you have a, a different profession of faith than you typically have on Sunday morning here at Cornerstone. As those of you who've been with us as members maybe for a while... Uh, you know that we typically uh, rehearse and profess together the 
Apostles' Creed in this spot. But over the course of this fall, we're going to focus our attention on this beautiful first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism, a wonderful uh, distillation of truth out of the Dutch Reformed tradition, which I plan on telling you more about in written word over the course of the fall so that you could become better acquainted with this document. But I believe this first question, which I'm going to urge you to memorize over the course of the fall together, summarize beautifully some of the major themes in the story of Joseph. Themes that we're going to have to come back to over and over and over again regarding God's providence uh, during challenges, during trials, and during sufferings, and the way in which the Lord is caretaking for his people. And so many of you this summer as we were studying the Beatitudes together memorized the Beatitudes. Some of you were overachievers and you memorized it in the Latin, or you memorized it in the Greek. I'm going to keep your names quiet right now. For those of you who didn't memorize, who now feel kind of knee-high to an ant, because there are people memorizing in the Latin and the Greek, and you didn't even do it in English. But that's okay. No shame on you. This is a place of grace. But you have the chance, going into the fall with the Heidelberg Catechism, to rectify that. You get to memorize this beautiful piece, and you'll notice all those wonderful scriptures that are cited there below in the catechism. And I think if you were to follow the footnote trail uh, over the course of the fall and learn these various stanzas, uh, your heart would soar. Uh, in the richness of the truths that we're going to rehearse together. And so just wanted you to be prepared for that when we get there just moments from now. Now, with that word from our sponsors complete, I'm going to focus in upon Genesis 37. Oh, what a wonderful story the story of Joseph is, despite the way it begins. This is not a wonderful beginning, is it? It's really a quite a discouraging beginning. But often, great stories begin in dark places. Some of the stories in your life that where the Lord has done his greatest work, have they not often started on a sad and sour note? And is it not often true that it's darkest, as is said, right before dawn? That in some ways is true in the story of Joseph and why it's one of the most powerful of the redemption stories that we find anywhere in the Bible. In fact, this will be heartening to a number of fathers in this room who have led your families regularly in family worship and you have often walked away from those moments of reading the scripture or in prayer and have thought, I do not think I'm getting through, right? No one is listening, no one seems to care, and yet as we're reading the Bible, nothing seems to be getting through. That was often this young man, as he was being raised by his very faithful father, opening the word regularly with him and his sister uh, in the evening to uh, worship the Lord together. And I just want to tell you, I I hardly remember anything my dad said during family worship. I'm just going to be honest with you, but I do remember when we studied the book of Joseph together. Because I remember when we got to chapter 50, the very end of the book of Genesis, and as he read the reconciliation passage between Joseph and his brothers after this long estrangement, I can remember my dad who never cries, cried at the beauty of the gospel presented within this narrative. I remembered when the truth 
arrested his soul. And as I was reading it again this week, I teared up. I'm, I'm going to tear up again talking about it right now of seeing the way the Lord worked in him and him sharing his warmed heart in the gospel through the story of Joseph with me. And it's from that place that I want to share this story with you. And I hope that you, as you hear it and rehearse it with me, that we together have our hearts kindled in the love of God who brings us out of darkness into a marvelous light. Now, in light of that, we're entering into the darkness this morning. We're entering into a family that is in utter disarray. This is, in some ways, the definition of dysfunctional family. That's right, it's not your family. It could be, right? It could be, but it's this family. It's, it's Jacob's family that's in all kinds of disarray. And as we look at this family, I want you to see amidst the darkness that is plenty, there are flashes of light. And that darkness among those flashes of light are telling us not just the story of Joseph, they're telling us the story of the Bible itself. I want to look at these first 11 verses with you in just two ways this morning. I want to look first at the favoritism that destroys. The favoritism that destroys. Because that's what we see in the life of Jacob in relationship to Joseph and Joseph in relationship to his brothers. We see a kind of favoritism that destroys. But I want you to see, secondly, that there is a favoritism that restores. There's a favoritism that restores. And so the whole of the message really hinges on the understanding of the term favoritism. What do we mean by it? And for probably most of us in this room, when you hear that term, it falls in a negative category. And it certainly does when we're looking at the first 11 verses of Genesis 37. But I think that you will see there is a favoritism that's a part of the nature of the story of the Bible that's right at the core of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that light by the end of our time together today. So we're going to start by looking at this favoritism that destroys. In the opening of our narrative, you see this young, strong, 17-year-old lad named Joseph. And he's serving as an assistant in the field, keeping watch over sheep. By the way, just a note here, a shepherd keeping sheep is very often a theme we see from Old Testament to New Testament, going from Moses to David to Jesus. Just no extra charge for that, but we see that with Joseph right from the very beginning. We don't know much information about him. We, we've kind of been inserted into his, his story at the 17th year. We don't know much of what's gone before. Uh, we know that he is uh, uh, the, 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 the treasured son of his father um, uh, Jacob in this story. But, but we do get a glimpse into his heart. And we see it right there in verse 2. When he runs to his dad and he gives a bad report to his dad about his older brothers. Now, if, if you read that, and maybe some of you kind of smile a little bit, you think, well, nothing's new under the sun, is it? Here is a younger sibling who has found out something about their older sibling that they now have to run to mom and to dad and to tell them all the bad things that they have done and kind of snicker underneath their breath as they see them get in trouble. That's sort of where my mind runs when I hear that he runs to dad and gives a bad report. This is the Joseph 
that the Lord uses to redeem and save many. He starts out like this. as nothing more than a little tattletale. What's actually worse than it reads on the surface. Because the Hebrew term that's used for bad report here is used in other places in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 18, for instance. And it's a word that actually indicates a false report with malicious intent. <laughs> So not only is he saying something that his brothers did bad, he's actually exaggerating, maybe fabricating. Maybe his brothers didn't do anything bad. He's just making something up bad about them. And he's coming with the expressed purpose to slander them. That he wants them to look bad in his father's eyes. Or if I can reverse the coin, he wants himself to look good. In his father's eyes. That's really what's going on, isn't it? That's usually the case. When we're talking bad about someone and we're belittling them or we're attacking their character, that we're in a sense wanting ourselves uh, to shine a little brighter in the eyes of whoever it is that we are talking to. And it seems quite clear in the context of this passage that that's part of what Joseph had in view. He wants to lower his brothers and he wants to raise his own sense of reputation and approval before his father. Now, where am I getting that? Well, if you look on, you can, you can kind of tell, can't you? With verse 3, we can see that there's a special relationship, yes, a little twisted, between him and his father. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. <laughs> right, there's that favoritism thing that's kind of the head point that we're drawing This Jacob, this father, has aligned with this one son, Joseph, in a very special way. Joseph knows this, and he is, as a savvy young man, exploiting it. Exploiting the favoritism of his father, coming with this bad report of brothers that already are not on the the high pecking order in the family with regards to love. And he's increasing his own sense of presence with his father and approval of his father while diminishing his brothers. It's a a kind of thing that that a firstborn will often do when they want to please their mom and their dad is to tout what it is that they've done so well and just wait for mom and dad to affirm them. And be very quick to tell mom and dad all the things that their siblings have done wrong. Because they think pretty highly of themselves. We actually see Joseph here leading with his pride. A man who is, who is stirring up, as it were, that sense of love and acceptance he already has from his father to make it plain that he really is the best among all the brothers. And it works. Uh, The foolishness of Jacob's favoritism shines even more there in verse 3, doesn't it? Because immediately following this, you might might have expected that Jacob would say, well, I better do my research to make sure you're telling me truth and and not just believe on one witness, but check the sources uh, to be sure everything is as you said it is. We don't see any of that. What do we see him do? He just gives Joseph a robe. The response in the way that the text actually unfolds is, he says, you are just the blessed, loving little child I have always cared for. You're a good kid. I'm going to give you a robe of many colors. Or as we have come to know in the children's literature from our early days, the coat of many colors. Now, I don't want to destroy any of those treasured images of 
multicolored coats that you have lodged away in your memory from that children's literature, from those felt board days. Or, God forbid, the image that you might have of Andrew Lloyd Webber's <laughs> oh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that psychedelic 70s-looking Dreamcoat that Joseph enjoyed, clearly written in to, Psalm, to Genesis 37. Not so much. Uh, the term actually is pretty difficult in the Hebrew to translate, to be quite honest. We don't see it other than just one other time in all the Old Testament, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 3. But the idea of many colors may or may not be present. It's actually slipping in through the Septuagint, for those of you who know your Bible translations. It's that language that we've come accustomed to. But the word actually speaks to an ornamented or decorated robe. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, it's applied to royalty. If you can pick up what I'm putting down, what, what Jacob is doing here is giving Joseph a robe that distinguishes him among all the brothers. Better than that, it doesn't just distinguish him or separate him, it elevates him. It is a royal robe. He is, if we can put it this way, being shown to be the favored son visibly with all of his other sons. This is not the kind of robe you go out and shepherd with. This is the kind of robe you sit on the couch and people bring you strawberries and pineapples to eat. And you enjoy the lap of luxury and of honor. Next generation. This one, he would say, has promise. Joseph is where I'm putting all my investment. Now, where am I seeing that? Well, a number of different places, but it's actually seen there in verse 3 with why it is that Jacob actually loves Joseph. Did you catch that? He loves Joseph more than all the other sons because he, Joseph, is the son of his old age. That's a little bit of a curious phrase. Why, why does he love him? Because he's just the son of his old age. And maybe some of us in here are going, well, you know that baby. You know that last one. I mean, there's just something special about that relationship. Well, no, I don't think it's that. Because the phrase that's actually being used there is a phrase that harkens back to Abraham and to Sarah. Uh, the, the Isaac of their old age, way beyond they were to ever have uh, children into those, those, those elderly years. Isaac became the son of Abraham's old age. And it's as if Jacob is saying, now with the birth of Joseph, late in his life through his treasured wife, not the one he didn't like so much, but through his treasured wife, he now is saying, this is my Isaac. This is my chosen one. This is the favored one of God. Now, it's no surprise when you begin to peel back the layers of what's here in the text that these brothers didn't, well, let's just say they didn't care for Joseph very much. It's actually a very kind way to put it. The language that's used as a drumbeat is they hated him. And they hated him increasingly. And in fact, they couldn't even speak peacefully to him, verse 4. That may mean, as, as Bruce Waltke actually suggests, it may mean they couldn't even greet him. The, the ancient tradition in Israel and among the Hebrew people was to greet someone with the language peace to you. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even speak a greeting to him. It may mean that there's nothing but stone-cold silence 
between Joseph and all of his brothers. There's a seething anger and animosity towards Joseph from his brothers. So let's just put it all in place here. Father Jacob favors Joseph. Joseph exploits Father Jacob in his favoring through the bad report. Father displays his increased infection for Joseph because of this and gives him a royal robe. Brother's hatred grows and increases. Do you see a problem brewing? At some point, this is not going to end well. Just when you thought it wasn't going to get any worse, though, it does. Verse 5, Joseph starts dreaming. Now, <laughs> these dreams, the, these dreams, which we're going to talk about more in the days to come, I'm not going to get all of my dream discussion out with you right now, but I do want to note that these dreams are prophetic in nature. They're God breaking into the scene, speaking directly to the mind and the heart of Joseph. And interestingly, God, who is not named at this point in the text, but is, who is speaking to Joseph about the future, his calling and his role, as he does so, things don't get better in the text. Just note that. I think that's worthy of an observation at this point. Because how many times do we pray and we ask God to intervene? And you know what we mean by that? For things to get better. That's what we mean. God, come down, do this work so that peace and grace and harmony will be there. And so God comes down and he speaks a direct word and the wheels fall off. You see, sometimes the, the Lord in his initial communications with the people of Israel and even to his church over the centuries, his words actually make a mess in order to really get to the heart of what needs to be cleaned up. Sheridan family are enjoying a disaster in our home right now. We've been replacing some flooring on the bottom floor. This next week we'll be replacing the flooring on the, the upper story. And of course, those of you who've made this harrowing venture, you, you know this means you pack up your entire house and you go nowhere. You, you look like you're going to move. You can't access anything. And, and, and people come in your house and everything gets in total disarray. We decided to do that the same week that school starts. Because that's just how we roll at the Sheridan House. <laughs> that's the level of wisdom we're operating with at the Sheridan House. So that's what we're doing this, this week. And to make these floors and to get this house where it really needs to be, it's needed some TLC for some time, now we're giving it to it. In order to get there, what are we having to do? We're having to make a total mess. And in some ways, God through this dream at this intersection is stirring the pot of what needs to be revealed. And we're going to see him over the course of time begin to address what really needs to be addressed to bring forth the fulfillment of these dreams. This dream, his dream about Joseph, that these sheaves in the field, his sheave uh, rising, standing tall, the other sheaves around him gathered, bowing down. Then later, the even bolder dream, the astronomical bodies, sun and moon for father and mother and the 11 stars bowing down to Joseph. It's an incredible, bold dream that's being given to Joseph. Now, I, I mean... This is not the kind of dream, listen, this is not, I mean, this is not your, you know, I had pizza late at night and I had a weird dream kind of dream, okay? 
It's not that dream. This is not the, you know, f- falling off of the skyscraper, waking up right before you die. This is not the feeling like I'm naked in front of a crowd and feeling very uncomfortable. I hope I never have that dream again. It's none of those dreams. This is a dream from God. He is literally telling us, in some sense, the end of the Joseph story right now. Isn't that beautiful? He's telling us where this whole narrative is going to go because what we're seeing right here happens at the end of the book of Genesis. When this Joseph, second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt, will have his brothers and his father bow down before him. His mother at that point has died. This is God speaking and Joseph is hearing it. Now, here's what's interesting. Joseph, there's work to be done here. To get this man in a place where he could be in that position and not be so full of himself. Because what do we see Joseph do here? Well, immediately after he hears this dream, of which God does not tell him, now go tell everyone. You don't see that in the command anywhere in the scripture. But of course, they have not finished their bacon and eggs from breakfast. He's just waking up and he's just coming downstairs and he says, i got to tell you about this dream. You, you won't believe it. I'm the hero of the story. And all of you are my servants. It's a great dream. It's an awesome dream. I really enjoyed it. And and he comes back and he has this dream again and he gets bolder. And you think to yourself, come on, Joseph, this is not going to go well, man. This is not not the time nor the place. He's either painfully naive. He is 17 after all. Some of us were legends when we were 17 in this room. Or he's so full of himself that he can't wait to tell others how great he is. Not sure what it is, but it goes over. Well, like a lead balloon. His, his, his brothers hate him all the more, we're told in verses 5 and 9, because of his words. More and more, tension escalating. Initially coming, we can see building towards a boiling point. This cycle of sinful favoritism and exploitation of it, and exclusion, and inner ringism, as C.S. Lewis would put it, the one being the most accepted towards the center, to be in. That, that spirit that's here in the midst of this text is what's causing the grave dysfunction that we see happening in Jacob's family. What I would suggest to you is that this favoritism that causes destruction is, needs to be replaced with a favoritism that causes restoration, that brings about restoration. Now, some of you in this room have experienced that restoration, but many of us in this room know what it's like to live in a family where the status quo is the kind of favoritism that's being described right here in the text. It's actually quite painful because you're not just thinking of Joseph and brothers. You're thinking of you and your sister and you and your mother or your father. You know what it was like to be second fiddle in your home. And you knew where you stood as somewhere in the middle or to the lower half of the pack in terms of love. And the hurtful memories, maybe even now as I'm speaking about it, begin to come back. Maybe you haven't thought about them in a while and, and now they're coming back even in the mention of it. Some of us know that pain and we each actually realize that that we've struggled in our relationships because our relationships have been so formative from those early childhood days and we believed and imbibed either the lack of love or the attacks that were given and we have walked through our lives with a soulish sense of deficit. 
And we've been there. Like, like Joseph's brothers, maybe that anger is now kind of soured into a cal- calcifying, brooding resentment that, that now wants to have nothing to do with people. Maybe some of you were actually that favorite son or daughter. Maybe you were doted on. Maybe you were spoiled by your parents. You were, you were called the good kid, the, the pretty one, the smart one, the successful one, the one who is most likely to succeed. And you drank in that praise. And you lived for that approval. What it feels like is actually Joseph's situation. And what's actually happened from that bloated sense of self-importance is you've walked through life constantly disappointed because not everyone has thought you're as awesome as mom did. And that hurts. And believe it or not, you're an insecure adult craving approval from those who are around you, trying to get back to the golden age that was you. And you're completely undone by the fact that you can't find your way back there. Now listen, there's a reason there's a little quietness in this room. We recognize that narrative. And some of us at a variety of levels are experiencing it. And we're carrying some of that forward into our marriages, to our children presently. When we haven't really dealt with the realities of those early formative wounds and they've done a shaping kind of almost generational influence upon our lives and now they're wrecking havoc in the lives of others. That old, right, famous now line, hurt people hurt people. Now, you may be saying to myself, well, we went strangely therapeutic there for a minute, Nate. Let's get back to the Bible. Well, I'm actually focusing upon the Bible because you see, This was Jacob's story. You do remember that his father didn't like him very much and liked Esau a lot better. You do recall that he was the favored one for his mother and that this is the generational story that we're in. That's why I'm making note of it. It's in the Bible and it's in our lives. And we need a replacement of that destructive favoritism to a favoritism that will redeem, that will recreate, that will give us a a strong place in which to stand and a secure place in which to understand our identity, who we are and what we've been called to. So what is this? What am I talking about? What's this favoritism that restores relationships? Well, if I can put it this way, We need the kind of love and acceptance that comes from a father that doesn't have to do with being the good kid. Doesn't have to do with being the the bad kid. Or have to do with being pretty or ugly. Or smart or not smart. Or making the grade or not making the grade. Or making the team or not making the team. We need a kind of identity that's so rock solid, so immovable, so secure in standing with father and with family that we have confidence even in the midst of rejection. And we have humility even in the midst of praise. Because it's become so not about us. But we need something along those lines. I'd like to suggest that the favoritism that restores relationships 
is that we need a better father. Nothing against your father, against mine. I started this sermon telling you about how wonderful it was to be raised by a father who loved the Lord. But he was a sinner. And everybody has a father wound, right? Everyone has baggage. Of course you do. We all need a better father. That's the story of the scriptures. We need a heavenly father. He's the only one that can actually heal the wounds of our nuclear family. And we need better brothers and sisters. Let's be honest about that. We need better brothers and sisters. We, we, need, we need those who in the body of Christ, those who are walking according to the kingdom of light, teaching us and rewiring us according to what healthy and redemptive patterns of intimacy and relationship look like. We need, we need people to help model that for us and to help us experience that. We, we, need, the, we need a favored son. A real favored son. A favored son who deserves to be favored. You see, that really is the story of the Bible. There is a favoritism that's appropriate. When, when Jesus shows up on the scene in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew and he is baptized by, by John the Baptist and the heavens open up and a dove descends and the voice from heaven speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are hearing the favored voice of a father who favors the favored son. That's what you're hearing. And that son, that favored son, is the one who willingly, by God's grace, led himself to be utterly rejected by that father out of his love and care for you. You realize that's what happened on the cross. Out of his passion and love for you, this most favored son becomes the rejected son. As that son, hanging on the cross, doesn't even say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But is so distant from him, so estranged, that he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see the story of the gospel is, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How did this chosen favored son become the rejected son of the father in that moment on the cross? Well, he did so because he took all of our sin upon himself. It was charged fully to his account that we... The bad kids. We the bad kids. Everything that we've ever done and all of the bad reasons we did all the good things we did has been charged to him. And he, in that moment, took the rejection of his father, which was the rejection that we should have had. It's the rejection we're afraid we're going to get from the others who are around us. He took it and he completely destroyed it. Through the favoritism of this one, he secured for us in his resurrection, his victory over the grave, he secured for you a favored status with the Father. He secured it for you. Paul writes to us in the letter of the Colossians. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That means your identity, your very life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer yourself. 
bad or good. You're no longer yourself success or failure. You're no longer yourself pretty or ugly. And every other category that we'd like to attach to our sense of self, those things have fallen completely. They are no monikers to describe who you are because now you are in Christ and in Christ alone. And you know what that means? That means that you have received the very status of Jesus himself. Do you see what Jesus has done? He has put you in his place by putting himself in yours. And so today, as hard as it is for some of us in this room to believe, it's the truest thing that I know to say to you at this moment. He looks upon you if you're in Christ Jesus today. And he says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's that's what he says to you. What he says to you. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth. He confirms that, not by some fiction, you see. It's not as if he's saying to you, listen, I'm just not going to look at the ugliness that is you. He's dealt with it, it is no more. For you to continue to resurrect it and live like it's a charge against you is to lose the identity that you have in Christ and a failure to believe the completion of what he has done for you in the gospel. Now, how do I know that that's true? Because here's what this father has done. This father has actually, and what I'm describing to you, is he has given to you a robe. He's given to you a robe. The very robe of Jesus' righteousness. The very royalty that is Christ, the king of heaven and earth. He's given that status completely to you. He's robed you in the beauty of the whiteness of that robe. Not multicolored whiteness of that robe. But it is strung together with the red thread of the blood of Jesus on your behalf. You see, at the hints of the opening of Genesis 37, we see in the midst of this utter darkness a flash of tremendous light. Because we see the God who is taking us from destructive favoritism that is a part of what has wrecked our relationships and our lives. And he is bringing us into a favoritism of righteousness in Christ that is rebuilding and reconciling all of our lives. You see, I think I understand now. I don't think I understood then why my dad cried. But today afresh, I understand. Because a truth this beautiful, this real, this awesome, deserves a response from God's people. To live in the light and the life of that truth. And to let it become... The hard water, as one of my friends says, of which we live our lives as a living sacrifice unto God. Friends, today I want you to know, this is the story of Joseph. This is the story of the gospel. And if you're in Christ, this is your story. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would take these realities and you would let them ring 
in our hearts and our minds until the melody and the harmony of these truths is the song that we sing and is the pace that we walk by until we are wholly remade in the beauty of this truth. Come, Lord Jesus, and in your power now, glorify yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.